Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project, this podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. We spent the second season finding people who are using those tools to lead the world towards transformation and the more beautiful future that our hearts know is possible. And now we're in the third season, where I want to begin to lay out a vision for that more beautiful future. The old Welsh socialist Raymond Williams said, To be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I want us to be truly radical. Nothing else is good enough now. So the act of making hope possible means that we need to see a clear path forward to a world where our lives have meaning and agency, where they have coherence and connection to the web of life in a way that allows us to feel as if we're an integral part of something strong and resilient. And that brings me to today's guest. Abel Pearson is a visionary and a dreamer in the deepest sense. He's a regenerative farmer who runs a community-supported agriculture project at Glassbrown in West Wales that is at the forefront of creating a different way of relating to the land. Abel brings a spiritual dimension to all that he does, and his account in this podcast of his practice has such deep integrity and real grounded authenticity that I found it utterly moving. This is one of the most deeply moving podcasts I've had the pleasure to record, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So people of the podcast, please welcome Abel Pearson of Glass Brown. So, Abel, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you for taking time out of what sounds like the busiest time of your year. How is it over in Wales? Mm, thank you, Amanda. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, real honour to be um, invited onto the Accidental Gods podcast. I'm, I'm a real fan and, and it actually came at a really interesting time in, in my life and, and yeah, my personal journey as a grower and, and living on land. So, yeah, it feels very uh, fortuitous and very synchronistic, which is wonderful. And you have rain. And we have rain. Yeah, I'm. I'm in. Um, I'm sitting in my little cabin um, under a big oak tree in the Welsh um, rolling hills between the Tav and Towy rivers in the in the west of Wales in Carmarthenshire. Um, and yeah, we've had the first rain um, for many weeks, and um, it's a real relief. I was out there celebrating. Um, in gratitude this morning for the for for some rain because it's been a it's been quite a harsh quite a harsh time of watering we we um we grow on quite a big we grow on an, about an acre of of land um for our veg boxes and um but we kind of like to water by hand still which is possibly strange for for people growing on that scale but it's something that's quite important to us as a as a ritual each evening to be right. in contact with our plants and and to see everything that's going on, but also to to give an offering, and we often mix in our our sort of homemade biofertilizers, which is our way of bringing our woodland microbes into the soil, mm. and and that just feels like our way of giving back for what for everything that we take. So we've we've kept up that practice despite growing to a quite a big size, but um, yeah, after after many weeks of doing that every day for a few hours it's it's it was starting yeah. to take its toll and there was a, a rust starting to settle on on my muscles and bones for sure so um yeah glad of a rest and yeah perfect brilliant so thank you i'd really like to talk about hand watering and about the rituals that you do and about your spiritual connection to the land which sounds really deep but before that, if we take a little bit of a step back, just to give everybody listening a picture of how Glassbren came about, how it is that you are farming an acre in the west of Wales. You don't sound Welsh. So can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you came to be there and what the aims are of what you're doing? Mm, sure. Um, so I, 
I was not born in Wales. We moved to Wales when I was nine, um, to this very place actually. So this is the land that I grew up on. So I, I still walk in the woodlands that I used to play in as a child and and a lot of my family are here and we're we're all we're all doing this sort of together in different ways. And I was um I wasn't particularly interested, to be honest, in, in land and and uh, agriculture or permaculture or any of these things and until I went away really uh, I had to leave this land to kind of discover these things um, I left when I was 18 and I, I I suppose I spent a lot of time between now and then in in kind of wild places mountain landscapes mostly um, um, you know mustering sheep in the southern Alps of New Zealand or um, hmm. working with with horses learning natural horsemanship in the Alpujarras in Spain and um, wow. And yeah, and then and then ended up in a place called Ecodama in the Catalan Pyrenees, which is really where I suppose the transformation happened that that led to this. Um, I I initially went there for a week um, for a, an immersion into permaculture, um, deep ecology, and and nature connection, and it was it was a highly transformational week, both from the content of the course and kind of weaving together a practical activities on land that could allow you to live in a sustainable and regenerative way with kind of a deeper radically ecological way of being and way of um starting to feel our oneness and our yeah our part in nature rather than separate from it that kind of idea of of mm. of we are nature we you know um i've actually it's interesting because i've a bit of a side note but i've heard you talk before in the podcast about about the difficulty of certain words and language and, and nature is one of those words that always cropped up for me yes. about how the very word nature in itself kind of kind of uh, facilitates that separation in a way you know and, and oversimplifies yeah. um, in a way but but for the purposes of of communication I think it's helpful I'm not sure actually because I, I think it I think it perpetuates the separation mm. I try and talk about the natural world or mm -hmm. the world outside mm. the windows or something mm. that that has slightly less of a sense of other yeah, to it. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I try to use maybe the web of life as well because it gives, yes. it sort of honors that complexity. Um, and, and yeah, that it can't just be sort of reduced into a single entity. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. And that's, and that, that, that week was, you know, I remember, I remember um, taking myself off running to the, onto the limestone cliffs that they have there and having a really profound experience with a, a really profound experience of of being um of my own wildness and of being um in flight with with the vultures there i i, I went wow. running along the clifftops and and i was scrambling up in the in the sort of midday heat and as i reached the top of the, the cliff there were i was sort of level with this with this vulture just sort of hovering only a couple of meters away from where i was and there was just this this like this, this thump, wow. this thump in the stomach that I'm sure you're familiar with of like, yes. of like being just uh, awestruck and being set upon by the, the the awe and the wonder of of the natural world and 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 I suppose something in the running and in the in my own physical movements and my own physical nature at the time was there was a feeling of real kinship and of, of being in flight and um, I only talk about that and, and tell that story to. To sort of yeah illustrate how I was having I was um, coming across a lot of content that was sort of um, giving form to a lot of the thoughts I've been having but at the same time having experiences in this kind of valley of such power and gravity that that were um, yeah a felt experience of that then I suppose and, mm. and that's and that that experience is the commonality I suppose of, of all the all the things that led to this is kind of trying to bring together um, physical activity and and a more sustainable and regenerative way to be on land and a radical radically ecological way of being on land and uh, with a very personal felt deep rooted connection to the natural world and I I, um, I suppose in, in being called back to Wales um, there were a number of reasons I suppose but I think there was I remember at the time it was, it was something to do with, with wetness, dampness, green. <laughs> um, you know, in Catalonia it was very dry and hard and hard to grow food, and 
and we worked right. really hard on, on building and and you know um it was it was it was almost monastic in the way of like you know moving rocks and 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 meditating together and it was it was a wonderful rich time and um but there was some calling back to the to the green lushness mm. of home and um and and yeah and i think i was starting to think about how how I could fulfill my social conscience and how I could fulfill this need to, to be in service to the earth and be in service to all beings. Had you been brought up with that? It sounds like your parents presumably were fairly, they'd gone to West Wales, mm. they'd taken you as a nine-year-old. Mm. Were they already heading in that direction? Have you have you taken them deeper than they already were or are you continuing a uh, family tradition? My, I mean, it was it was such a brave and, and courageous move that my parents took. They um, they had, to my knowledge, no experience of of farming or of growing or of of being on land at all. Really, my my dad's always been very practical. He's got taught himself a lot of different practical skills and is very self reliant in that way. So I think that really helped. Hmm. But yeah, they 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 made a huge brave step, and it took a lot of vision to see what the place could be because it had become quite run down and neglected um you know there were common uh, there was you know the woodland was full of rubbish that had been dumped there which was a common story at that time for farms and yeah and and yeah and I think all of their friends were were kind of taken aback by what they were doing they thought they were kind of <laughs> crazy and 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 only as the years have gone by have I realized what what a sacrifice and what a what vision it took um yeah a huge move. Yeah, and um, and slowly, I think that the 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 farming came and the and yeah, living self sufficiently came to them. And I suppose that's that's where they've come from is is that trying to be self sufficient as much as possible. Um, but they've done lots of different things. They they fostered children for a long time, and and they mm. uh, they have holiday cottages on the farm now. Right. Yeah. So I suppose I I I introduced permaculture to them and, and and some of those techniques and some of the ideas around how to be a little more kind of whole systems in our approach and in our thinking and yeah okay um, so you came back from Catalonia mm-hmm. drawn back by by actual rain yeah um which is good now that we have some mm-hmm. um so how did so you've got an acre mm-hmm. on on your parents farm mm-hmm. And you are now beginning to run that as a commercial business. So can you talk us through some of the sense of your vision for that mm. and particularly of the spiritual grounding in the earth and what you're hoping to do in a wider sense with that? Mm, sure. Um, so I would say that the vision arose out of kind of starting to realise that we're trying to look for a way to make these ideas, make this idea of needing to shift our consciousness to a to a a far more ecological consciousness or, or as I was saying kind of if we're going to approach the challenges of our times you know climate change uh, ecological collapse um, mm. but also social problems you know like uh, diet related health problems um, um, isolation loneliness the breakdown of our communities yeah. I was looking for something that that, that, could, that my work on land could you know that could encompass all those things and try to in a small local way start to address some of those issues and 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 I suppose I started to realize that that growing food um feels like and felt like a really democratic I suppose democratic mm-hmm. and universal way of doing that you know it's not it's not exclusive in the way sometimes certain worlds um and and the permaculture world can feel and can be it can um yeah and I was looking for a way to reach out with that with that circle reach out with the bubble and 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 bringing more people to the ideas and to the feeling of it and to the um without using language that was alienating or or um and yeah growing food you know uh, it may be cliche but we all eat you know and we 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 all mm. eat three times a day and that that's an opportunity three times a day for each of us to have a relationship with our local land and because we because our diet has become so globalized um you know, we don't. We have no connection really to 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 where that food comes from, who grows that food, the story in that food. Um, we have no connection to how it was grown, the impact of how it was grown and transported. You know, so seeing a local food system and and um, 
a local community food project as perhaps the best way to start talking about issues of sustainability, um, to start bringing people together in meaningful community, um, yeah, and start to address health and not just mm. not just dietary and nutritional health, but but um, mental health as well. You know, there, there's such links between health of soil and health of gut and health of mind and yes and slowly over time this 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 web has unraveled of how everything is so connected in that way and, and yeah. can you speak a little bit more for the because this may be new to some of our listeners mm. the concept mm. of the health of the soil the health of the gut and the health mm. of our mind and then uh, then i would like to move on to because i think this links to spiritual health mm. but just in a purely materialist sense the soil biome mm. links to the gut biome links mm. to our mental health. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so we, I mean, many people say that we are we are more we are more um, more fungi and bacteria than we are human. You know, so yeah. um, the amount of life in our gut is so huge that it that it makes up more than the rest of our body in total. You know, so it's. And there's a lot of work going on, um, and I'd recommend uh, someone called Zach Bush if anybody's interested in mm. finding out more. Um, there's a lot of work going on and a lot of research going on in the link between um, industrial agriculture, uh, weed killers like glyphosate, Roundup, um, yeah. and the health of the gut lining, which in turn affects the health of the cells and is being linked to um, increase in cancer rates and autism and yeah essentially essentially those chemicals uh, work at breaking down the communication system between our cells is my sense of of it from my very limited sort of scientific capacity you know it, it just feels like our our mental health and our health in general is directly linked to the health of our soil and that that brings us into such intimate connection with with how our food is produced, you know, it's, um, yeah. and that's only possible on a local level because you, you need to have a relationship with the grower and the, the land that it's being grown on and, and, and yeah, be able to be able to have that, that transparent relationship where, you know, you know, how, how the food is being grown and you know that these chemicals are not being used. Hmm. So in case it's, it's, Quite unlikely, but in case we have any industrial farmers listening, can you talk a little bit about, because they, they always say we we need the chemicals because otherwise we cannot produce enough food. This is the argument, this is Monsanto's argument of the only way to feed the world is to destroy it fundamentally. Mm. And yet, mm. you and I know this isn't true. Mm. I'm hoping that the people around you are beginning to learn this mm. isn't true. Mm. So in, in purely agricultural terms, can you tell us about the practicalities of growing in a way that does not involve the chemicals and which is going to enhance and I'm hoping increase your soil biome, the number of bacteria and fungi in your soil so that the life of the plants and the lives of the people who eat those plants mm. are enhanced. I think, yeah, and, and it's important for me to say that there's no judgment in what I say, you know, there's no kind of criminalization of individual farmers you know I, I i totally understand the system in which people are trying to operate um much like most of our industrialized capitalist systems you know it's 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 a harsh master and um to be able to make a living in financial terms from farming is really hard and mm. um and these are the reasons that people have been driven to you you know to to increase in size and start using these these chemicals and 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 the seeds that go with them and and the machinery and the you know and and it just gets bigger and bigger and it's sort of a it's it's never ending and it's I can see having done it as well how hard it is to contemplate trying to do it on on in the way that we do it because it's 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 really hard when you're trying to have a product and trying to um, deliver veg boxes to people on a weekly basis guaranteed but also be in relationship with the earth and also be in relationship with pests um mm. and trying to stay in a kind of surrendering relationship where you're not 
you know, you're not trying to dominate. Yeah, and probably not defining them as pests anymore. Yeah, at some exactly. level, yeah, we need to change our relationship. Perception shift that yeah. has to happen between yeah, us and pests and, and weeds as well, you know. So in terms of actually the land, you've got your acre. Can you can you give us a bit of a kind of earth shovel, hands in earth? What have you actually done on a practical level with this land? So um, the land that we're actually growing on is it would be considered quite marginal. Um, it was when I took it over quite a degraded, um, rocky paddock on on quite a severe slope actually, um, which would probably turn most market gardeners away from it. But hmm. how severe is severe? Or, or, or can you get a tractor on it? No, no, you. you you couldn't work it with a tractor. I, I've done some digger work on it in the beginning in the shaping of the of the terraces and the swales and the, the contours, but but no, nothing other than that, I wouldn't say. Um, right. So we're talking 30 degrees or more. Mm, yeah. Wow. So, okay. So you dug some swales. That was a starting point. As a permaculture designer, that was, that was quite an interesting challenge um, to start to look at how we could start to build organic matter and soil again and how we could work with one of the main problems being that we have a heavy clay soil and, and with a slope like that, the, the water and rain had taken a lot of the good soil to the bottom of the hill and we had about a metre of good soil up against the fence at the bottom, you know, and um, hmm. and looking at how we can we can work with the water to kind of build soil but also unlock the potential, the mineral potential of that water and keep it in the land um, rather right. than letting it run off. And um, so... Essentially, we have a no-dig system, so we have permanent fixed raised beds um, designed um, to be optimised for human labour. So they're all 70 centimetres wide because that's that's kind of believed to be the, the best size of bed for humans to step between and humans to be squatted in the pathways working the beds. And okay. So it's basically two arm lengths across. Yeah, so all designed for human efficiency and... and um, and yeah, the no-dig system, um, the idea being that we don't disturb the soil, we don't disturb the um, soil biology, we, we leave the structure intact um, and we just add organic matter every year, much like the forest does. And where do you source your organic matter? Um, a mix, really. We make a lot of it um, ourselves um, using hot composting techniques. Um, and also we um, do bring in some from our local um, council facilities, so they offer an organic um, compost made from the kind of green waste and tree prunings and wood chip from around the local area. Um, okay. So that's allowed us to be no dig from the beginning to have that organic matter imported. But in time, we're making a lot of our own wood chip compost, and we're we're right. obviously tr- going to moving towards closing that loop on the farm. And is that because your parents have planted trees that you are now mm. felling for wood? Yeah. So we have. My folks planted um, about a thousand trees in 2012, um, but we also have willow coppices that have been cut many times, and alder coppices, and and um, so those provide a regenerative source of wood chip. Right, um, brilliant. Um, but also, you know, we get a lot of donations. We get a lot of donated wood chip because there's a lot of tree surgeons working locally who who would dump it otherwise and and kind of bring it round and give it to us for free. So that's that's really right. helpful to be able to bring okay. in those those waste materials from the local area. Which... So you're beginning to get a kind of circular economy going. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I suppose I suppose what I said about kind of trying to mimic the forest is kind of informs everything that we do. It's kind of looking to the natural world to how how natural ecosystems function in a sustainable way within their limits and um, and yeah, a mix of of trying to close the loop on the farm but also using waste materials from from the local area that wouldn't otherwise be put back into the system um yeah. feels like yeah feels like a way to fulfill that and does that are you finding that people's attitudes are changing i'm imagining that already you have quite a high percentage of people who understand permaculture principles and mm. circular economy mm. and closing loops but are you finding that what you're doing is changing hearts and minds in the area around you certainly yeah there's a there's definitely a there's definitely pockets um of awareness and there's obviously there's with our one planet development policy that we have in wales which um has allowed people to create 
uh, low cost, low impact dwellings on land in Wales um, and build eco houses and, and live from the land. And, and that has brought a lot of people into Wales and into West Wales. Um, that's created all these little pockets of kind of, of, of living in permacultural and regenerative ways. Um, but I'd say where we live here, we're still in very much a, a traditional farming area and um, it's not particularly economically um, well off this area, um, very working class. Um, yeah. Are we having, I think we are, I think we are, I think we're, I think I've noticed in the time that I've been doing this a huge difference um, in general awareness around the climate and the environment and the need to eat locally. And I suppose that comes from a whole range of different um, reasons or stimulus or catalysts. I think um, probably Extinction Rebellion mm. and and Fridays for Future and, and the kind of increase in awareness around the climate um, last year and the year before. Um, has really has really driven a lot of people our way. And then the virus. The virus, yes, definitely since the lockdown happened, since the virus came into our lives. Um, interest in, in veg boxes and uh, local food for me has surged. I feel like it's, it's we've had so many requests and um, just I've just felt just an increased willingness and enthusiasm for what, for what we offer you know it didn't it didn't feel like we needed to uh push we didn't need to yeah. really work hard like we have done in previous years to find find our members and find the people that that wanted to engage with this kind of project and this kind of unique experience um yeah and I, and and i think that's a combination of obviously people being stuck in their homes and needing needing delivery needing food delivered to their homes um, mm. but I think it's also people starting to realize the fragility of, of our quote, normal systems, our um, yeah. fragile food system, which, which really, you know, in a crisis isn't fit for purpose and, um, and is very, fra- you know, is very fragile, very unresilient, um, yeah. and starting to realize that the local food and local community-based food systems and support systems are what people can rely on and I think it's been it's been a really interesting time for reflection on that on that front you know it's, we've seen so much so much beautiful expression of of mutual aid and of community yes. and of you know pop-up support structures and and we've seen it here we've seen it here at the garden as well you know we've really benefited from um, we were able to find a way to work with some furloughed workers who wanted to volunteer and they've given so much of their time to help us still achieve what we wanted to achieve without without our usual um, our usual setup and brilliant and just offers of help from our community of members you know to do deliveries or to or to you know make things easier for us or and and yeah I think it's I think not just having, a local supply of veg available. I think it's there's something that people are yearning for in being part of a cohesive and authentic and supportive community that you can rely on. You know, and I think crisis, as as you know, as painful and as full of loss and suffering as this crisis has been, I think it's it's been a catalyst for for that. So can you tell us a little bit about the practicality? Your members pay a subscription mm. and then and then if you have a crisis, if the rain hadn't come and there was no water, for instance, would they continue to pay the subscription and, and just understand that there wasn't going to be so much? Mm. Yeah, so we, we try to operate as a true uh, community-supported agriculture scheme, uh, CSA, um, which is um, probably more common and familiar to... Um, to audiences in the United States and in Australia, it seems to be much more common as a model. Um, but there's there are several. Um, there's probably a hundred in the UK, and there's there's definitely five or six in Wales. And um, essentially, the community-supported agriculture model is a, is a total reimagining of of the relationship between consumer and producer um, and farmer, in which the risks and rewards of farming are shared. So. Um, the understanding that farming is seasonal, um, 
and farming in in relationship with the earth and farming in an organic way you know comes with a lot of challenges and comes with a lot of struggles and and but then can also deliver such amazing um rewards and such a beautiful harvest and so it's kind of it's tying the consumer and the producer together in a in a relationship um yeah where as you say there's a a weekly subscription we offer our members to even contribute for the whole season in advance which many many choose to do brilliant and that's basically a pledge of you know it's a pledge to say we support you for the season and we support you to grow the food and we will take whatever is coming out of the garden that week um depending on that part of the season and and yeah there there's you know our first boxes are generally a little bit leaner because this time of year there's not we've just come out of the hungry gap and there's not so much variety but then come august we've got you know there's 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 an abundance of variety and we can put so much more in the boxes and mm. and and we're sharing that and it and it just feels like it sort of flips that relationship where food is no longer seen just as a commodity you know, yeah. product that you buy um, with a sort of faceless relationship to the person who yeah. grows it, but it's in, in plastic boxes, and it's the same every week. Yeah, exactly, and we—that's one thing we do guarantee that we use no plastic in the boxes because we don't need to. Um, we don't have an organic certification because we we don't need to, because the members right. can come and be directly involved in the they growing. Can they can it. see how it's how it's done. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and and members they receive between seven and ten items of uh, mixed fruit and veg every week and uh, fresh herbs and salads and we also put in um, a wild surprise we call it so something Mm. foraged from the wild um, edible um, that um, that they can try and and who creates that do you go foraging for it we we do yeah we have last year we did it for every week for every box um, wow. I think because we've increased dramatically this year, we're going to have we're going to have to do it slightly differently. Um, and what kinds of things would you be putting in for your wild surprise? So this week, for example, we've got um, plantain going in there, which is a, yeah. a very common weed and um, grows oh, in fields gorgeous, and hedgerows and and yeah, and and I suppose a big part of the experience for people is 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 how we communicate it. So we put in a we put in a sheet with the box every right. every week. Um, which is called the Veggie Love News, and um, which was named by my my wife's German mother, <laughs> and um, yeah, and it's it's our way of kind of having that transparent relationship. So we so on on one side of it, we we write something about how we're growing the food or why we're doing it this way, or something we're thinking about, maybe some of the challenges we're having, whether it's a drought or too much water or or late frosts yeah. or you know these kind of things. Um, yeah. And and also, yeah, we have recipe ideas and we have right. uh, information about the medicinal properties of the food. And um, because plantain is one of those amazing things that mm, you can make tea, you can make yeah, poultices. Yeah. I was drawing a splinter out of my dog's foot with yeah, it. Yeah. And but people won't know unless yeah. you tell them. Yeah, exactly. And and it's and we've already had feedback from last year that you know it's totally revolutionised people's dog walks and yes, you know of and. and and that says something about what just a little bit of knowledge about what's around you, how much you know, what new dimensions of of the natural world that can open up for you, and it it speaks to what we're trying to do, I suppose. It's it's, it's trying to use food as a as a powerful vehicle for for doing and for that. reconnecting people to the land. Yeah, exactly. Which sounds really as if you're achieving that. So, can you tell us a little bit? Because when we spoke earlier, you spoke very movingly about your spiritual connection to the land, and how you're bringing that into what you do can you tell us a little bit more about that Mm, absolutely um so i suppose and uh, i suppose it's particularly relevant to the lockdown because with i've noticed since the lockdown and maybe having more time or um, maybe it's something to do with the fact that i uh, we had a son um our son was born on march the first and just before the lockdown and um and that's for, that's yeah that's created a bit of a shift in me and in, in in the urgency to to go out there and 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 find or deepen that relationship with the natural world but more so with with the land I'm growing on um and the the ceremonies and the practices and the rituals that 
feel authentic to me and have meaning for me and have meaning to this land and um, this place. And are you creating those in conjunction with the land, you and it together, or are you following a particular system? No, I've I've tried to just, I suppose they're informed by um, a Celtic earth-based spirituality as, as well, you know, the West closest Wales. I can find to, yeah, a kind of a, a lineage, if you like. Um, but but more so, I'm trying to just trying to just listen and trying to just listen for what the land has to say, and um, because I want to be able to offer my son something, I want to be able to offer him the kind of ceremonies and rituals and rites of passage that will allow him to have a relationship with the land and to feel in kinship with it and. And it very much feels like I'm walking around, try, you know, almost kind of feeling my way along the dark, damp, um, hmm. you know, passageways of of that I might be able yeah. to lead him through uh, one day. And because yeah. um, you had been sitting out, you you'd sat out overnight, mm, I think, exactly. at Beltane. And that was that was yeah. On Beltane, I went out um, for a couple of days fasting, just in this forest here, which is interestingly something I haven't done here. I've never done hmm. here, and and. You know, I've, I'm sure many people have the same way. You you go off to, to sort of wild places to find these kind of experiences. You go to, you try to go to dramatic landscapes or mountain landscapes or or into caves in the Catalan Pyrenees. And but right. there's something about going into my local acre, my local land, this land I'm working, and trying to have something like you know, trying to go there for for answers and just to listen and just to hear what the language is here and hear what yeah um and start to feel something like an indigenous connection i suppose um yeah and using that word indigenous very carefully because i'm not you know without trying to appropriate and that's something to do with the you know coming up with with the rituals and ceremonies that i want to engage in is is trying isn't is being really clear not to appropriate anything and and anything doesn't feel authentic to me in my life and my my lineage and ancestry and but to be indigenous to mean you know of this place not yes. from this place but but of this place and um yeah and that's i suppose that's taken the form of working with what i call the kind of twin gods really gratitude and grief um mm. mainly um so i have a practice that i've been doing um, for the last few months, which is to, I leave the house early and well, um, everyone's still sleeping and I, and I walk to the river that just runs along the bottom of the garden where we grow the food and um, I go to the river and I um, sort of call in the four directions and try to create a, a bit of a ceremonial space and then and then just allow a stone or a stone to choose me, basically. I sort of see it as hmm. a stone in the river choosing me and, and whichever one calls out I take that stone and I speak to my gratitude for that day um which is which is you know uh, at the moment is is brimming because I you know I'm grateful for my son every day and 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 also grateful for life and health and you know when there's so much so much death and suffering around in this time but yeah it can be anything and 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 then I take that stone and sort of walk slowly up the hill through the garden um past all of our crops and everything that we have growing with that stone kind of weighing in my hand and and then i place it on a we sort of have an altar that's a it's a fire pit where the the fire's oriented to the south and we have a sort of an altar that's um rises up above it and i I just place that stone on the altar and and slowly over the months you know a a cairn has started to emerge and and to to sort of symbolize the power and the weight of that collective gratitude over time and and that's been something that just came it just came as something i wanted to start doing and 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 it feels very true to me and it feels very honest and simple and and beautiful it sounds really beautiful and and, and, and it sounds really grounded i mm, love it sounds gorgeous mm. And and just gets deeper and deeper, you know, as as time goes on, and it just starts to feel more a part of me as time goes on. Um, and by the time your son is joining you, if he chooses to join you, mm. that cairn will be quite substantial. 
unless any of the stones decides it needs to go back to the water, which of course they may. But yeah, and I'm wondering, listening to you, at the start of our conversation, you spoke about the vultures in Catalonia, and I am very aware of the red kites here mm. on the on the other edge of Wales. Yeah, Wondering if the red kites are speaking to you in the way the vultures did. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They. I remember during my um, during my sit during my two days, um, there was a moment where what where a, a kite just kind of came down super low. You know, oh. I must have been still for long enough and and present for long enough that that I'd become a part of his view and he just kind of swooped through really low level and Fantastic. gave me a nice flash of all his colors and yes. um, yeah it's the, the kite is 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 the kind of the bird of this area um, yeah. if we're going to talk about the majestic the yeah. majestic um yeah sky bird of prey um mm, yeah yeah and there was a moment actually as i first made my my grief shrine in the woods and we had this area that we've been working with that, that we'd like to become a ceremonial space for, for doing work with with our course participants and things is and it's a it's a unique place because it's it's the only place in the whole forest where there's the rowan tree and it's the only place in the whole forest where there's the birch because the rest is just all oak ash hawthorn kind of traditional deciduous mm. forest of this area um, but there's this yeah there's this area where there's there's the only rowans and the only birch wow um, and and at the base of a, a big giant fallen rowan, um, I've created this grief shrine, um, which is um, which as I was building it um, and speaking to the to the to the hawk of dawn or to the you know to the bird representing the east, um, yeah, red kite came soaring through the the break in the trees in that moment, and and really oh, yeah, wow. just shouted loud, you know, kind of. Yes. And, and and because I was, you know, I was kneeling there almost begging for, for some answers as to what, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I'd, I'd made this shrine and it's actually made from the bones of a goat that I, I buried myself um, maybe 10 years ago now. Um, I was quite young and, and I had a close relationship with this goat. His name was Gandalf and um, this old gruffly Billy goat. And, um, Magic. and, yeah, so I had taken it upon myself at that time to to dig his grave by hand, and, and I remember it being a very intense experience. I even remember getting very sick after it, which is interesting. Mm. Um, and then years later, we were we were we were doing some digger work on a space that was going to become a space for our polytunnel, and his bones were dug up by the digger. Oops. Um, yeah. Um, but had also also previously been dug up by animals, I think. So there was okay. They'd been collecting over time, and so I gathered all those bones, and I decided to bring them to my to my grief shrine. And because of feeling, I suppose, a sense of a sense of something binding us together, because I buried him, hmm. um, there was some kind of something that bound us, and maybe this the symbology of his bones would help me come into a closer relationship with grief and with death and with um mortality and 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 maybe yeah feeling like once once that's once i've once i feel that's something that's feeling real maybe i can then ceremonially bury those bones again and and mm. you know and but i was but i also found myself once i you know once i made my shrine kneeling there and kind of yeah, begging for for a voice or answers that would tell me what to do. You know how to do a yeah. grief grief ritual. How how to do this authentically? How to do this in a way that's real and with meaning? Because I've held, you know, I've held really powerful grief ceremonies within the context of um, the work that reconnects, mm. um, which is yeah, amazingly powerful to bring together everybody's grief in a circle and. Um, but in terms of a personal daily practice um, and in terms of a way to do it, you know, a way to evoke those those spirits of the wood or a way to evoke um, a ceremonial space around that was, I was feeling like, like I need some answers. I need, and, and, and that was the moment that the, the, that the kite through. flew. Or, yeah, it was a, it was a wow. kite, I think, but yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, Gosh. 
And it just, yeah, it said something, and it said something that maybe I can't put to words. And and I think, you know, that I think I talked to you about this in our conversation before about how sometimes there isn't words, there isn't a big, you know, there isn't a way to talk about the experience. And, and sometimes it's not even a grand experience, you know, it's not a, you know, a blowing you open kind of experience. It's just something that seeps in, something that yeah. deepens and something that... And changes the texture of who we are in mm. my experience somehow and it's only looking back that we can go that was a turning point and it wasn't as if it was I chose to go left when I could have gone straight on it's I chose to I moved a degree one way or the other from the trajectory that I was on mm. but then that brought me here because a degree over over a lifetime takes you to a very different place mm. that's so very 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 moving mm. really I am sitting here with tears flowing down my cheeks. Thank you. So taking that as our springboard, Mm. I would really like to look forward to your vision of how the world could be if we got it right. Mm. In your own land, in the wider context, however you see it, Mm. Abel, what would your vision be for a world where we've moved towards flourishing? Mm. Well, I can sort of certainly speak to food and farming and my own land here. And um, I suppose, yeah, to bring together those two things that we've been talking about, about farming and agriculture and um, a sacred connection to land or a ceremonial connection to land and earth and kind of understanding that that's, you know, for peasant farmers around the world, that's that's been the way forever and still is and and those people still feed most of the world you know yes um and that kind of yeah that relationship of reverence and using ceremony as a way to give thanks for what we reap from the land and um and to honor the the fact that being a grower and growing food and farming links us with a long line of people who have had their hands in the soil and and have produced food through the seasons and that cycle has gone on and on and on and will continue to do so beyond us and i suppose that's yeah that's that's one thing that i think we need to do is to, is to reimagine or rediscover what it means to be a farmer that's something mm-hmm. that i'm doing you know it's like how to move in a dance with the earth and and kneel in prayer in in the in the dirt in the in the soil and listen for the dreaming of the land um finding again the 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 child's wonder in the germinating of a seed Hmm. um, and giving thanks for the sacrifice that seeds make and to humbly kind of take our place pull our chair into the to, to the circle of life and and you know just dig in and and root and Acknowledge that we're not just food producers; we're, we're beauty makers. We're we're the keepers of the seeds, and we're the keepers of the stories that go with those seeds. And um, we're protectors of the earth, and we're stewards, and we're we're partners of the earth. And that so that's something that I'm starting to feel, you know, that's, um, shifting my own perspective as a grower from a very much a sort of utilitarian like being stuck in the doing in the things I have to do to produce food to get it to, to kind of a more reverential more surrendering relationship right as well I'm learning a lot from doing this project and growing food in this way and using the CSA model of sharing the food is is that I think food and farming have such potential to address so many of of the issues that we're facing and if we're trying to reimagine and vision a different world i think these kind of models are what we need to see we need to put the farm we need to put farms and food at the heart of communities Mm. Um, we need to i think we need to reimagine our lifestyles so that we have the space to eat well um space to go and be on on community farms go and be involved in growing our food because I don't I for me personally I don't necessarily feel like everybody growing their own is the answer I think it's wonderful that that so many more people are and I would never discourage that but I think 
if we're looking at a true alternative system, I think we we need to be looking at community supported farms where mm. people can support growers to do the work that they need to do, but also reap all of the the benefits that are there for, you know, the benefits of being in touch with the soil for mental health and for physical health and um, combating isolation that we have in our communities and, and just all the things that, that I've talked about that we've seen during this lockdown, if we could normalize those things, you know, not just during yes. a lockdown, not just during a crisis, but to see those things as normal and to give people the space and release the pressure on people that forces them to work, you know, so yeah. hard and, um, which, which is a vicious cycle with a convenience food system, you know? And yeah. Yeah, I suppose I just I just imagine I, I imagine land filled with people, and I think I spoke to you about the first time that the vision of of the, the garden being filled with people was realised. You know, the first time that we had people kind of snaking through all the different paths, working and helping to grow their food, and then being able to give them all a basket of food at the end of the day was yeah mm. hugely moving and and just seemed right. You know, it seemed like. Yeah. And I think, and, and there's something to just, there's something to be unlocked. There's, there's a, a willingness to give in community that I think a lot of people have, but that is maybe locked up and that just needs to be given the space to yeah. unfurl. And, and that, that takes away as well a lot of the financial pressures on farmers that, that force them, as we were saying, into those practices, into those ways of doing things that they don't necessarily want to be doing, you know. Mm. Um, because we can rely on our community as much as they can rely on us. So it's about unhooking the financial pressures from the creation of food and the sense of stewardship of the land and the mm. then allowing that surrendering into relationship that you were talking about. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, that, that question can get very political, um, which I don't know if we want to get into that right now, but... Um, but there's a lot that can be done on that level to support yeah. this kind of food and farming, you know, um, and yeah, and and Brexit was potentially an opportunity for that. I don't know if we're going to see that opportunity realised mm. um, through this current government because it requires a government with far vision. More vision and compassion and genuine green mindsets and care for the earth. So. Um, Let's yeah, without getting too political yeah, and in the yeah, assumption that yeah, this government yeah, is not, not going to deliver that because yeah. it's too busy yeah. trying to break the yeah. economy. It seems to me that we can do this from the ground up. That Absolutely. in a way we can yeah. render the politicians irrelevant. Yeah, we, indeed, we need to, and keeping it small, keeping it hyper local, yeah. and and yeah, just forging general, um, uh, genuine, authentic communities around these small farming projects. Do you think the people who have volunteered with you who were furloughed, are they expressing a desire to work less for the system and mm. be able to spend more time with you? Is that mm. a reality? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really happened. That's, you know, people have, who have maybe got jobs that mean they have to work indoors all of the time have, have said to me that they this has totally changed their, their outlook. They want to have more time to be outside. Um, you know, we've had people talking about just questioning the whole concept of what they were doing or, or of work in general and of yeah. what work is essential and what work isn't and, and yeah. um, what, you know, what is a meaningful way to spend our time and mm. and to see people so willingly giving their time, you know, for no mm. monetary reward. Yeah. But then you don't need monetary reward no. if you have food well, indeed, and shelter yeah, yeah, and housing. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yes, yeah. let's not get political. I can feel myself yeah, yeah, but getting it's, there. But we could do such this. an exciting possibility, you know. And, yeah. and, and if enough of us say we, we're just not interested in your system, yeah, you, know, you can have your system if you want it, but we don't want to take part in it, yeah. then that system will wither. Absolutely. Without yeah. us, you know, without us having to have a revolution, <laughs> we can yeah. have it yeah. from the ground up. Yeah, um, and I think that model of of business um, that it's a bit more kinder and more community mm. focused, and is perhaps something that can be rolled out, to, you know, across the board. It doesn't just have to be food. Um, to have you know to have business where where they are supported by their community. Mm. 
and doing work that is relevant. Yeah, that's that the is, key, isn't that it? That is relevant and needed and essential and yeah. And then all we have to do is work out what is relevant and needed and how we're going to do it <laughs> in a regenerative way. And there yeah, we have it, absolutely. our new reality. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I think that's that's been my learning from, from this whole time, really. Yeah. Mm. And you teach people. So if people wanted to come and learn from you, is that possible? Mm. Do you have mm. woofing schemes or something similar to that? Uh, we, we have offered woofing and or through HelpX, actually, which is a, a similar concept, but just a different organization. Um, uh, we have um, weekly volunteer days um, for local day volunteers. Um, and we've been exploring our course and workshop structure, something we wanted to offer this year, but we've had to cancel all of mm. those programs. But um, we've been exploring like, what is our what is our unique thing to offer? You know, what is our because we don't want to do kind of how to how to tutorials on how to grow and because there's plenty you know you can yeah YouTube is full YouTube of YouTube is saturated with that stuff but it's um I think what we're looking to offer is kind of an immersion or yeah an immersion into the experience of growing food this way um, with the natural world um, with a relationship underpinned by a deep connection to nature uh, a deep understanding of ecosystems how how everything works but also with a reverential ceremonial mm. approach to giving thanks for the food and giving back to the land and um, i suppose kind of an, an an initiation experience into becoming a food grower or yeah. a, a peasant farmer or a yeah or a, a, an earth steward essentially um and we're going to probably offer that through a mix of day workshops and immersive residential um, courses, retreats. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's that's what we want to be offering. And um, yeah, it's very exciting and I look forward to being It sounds to very exciting. And we will put a link for all the people who are at this moment going, I want to do that <laughs> because that's so in line with everything that this mm. podcast and, and accidental gods is heading towards mm. that I imagine that will that will be very popular so there will be a link in the show notes for, people yeah. for for how to yeah. connect to that yeah. so we're coming to the end of our hour it's been so rich and so profoundly moving just for me talking to you and that sense of grounded integrity that you bring to your work is is unmatched actually, Abel. I am so in awe of what you're doing and the the sense of genuine spiritual connection to your land and to the people and to the trees and the red kites and and the mycelia and and the bones of the goat on the altar. It sounds really very, very profoundly moving. Your son is such a lucky person. Oh. So is there anything that you any last thing that you would like to say that you haven't said? Um, no, just just to express my gratitude for you reaching out and for the opportunity to be here and and um, to speak about my personal experience and my personal journey because it's, it's something I, I don't get to do very often and and it's um, yeah and I, and I I also honour the work that you're doing I think it's so powerful and I, I'm. Um, I'm so grateful that you're that you're offering it to the world and you're offering these voices to the world and um yeah it's been a wonderful experience thank you well thank you so that's it for another week enormous thanks to Abel for taking the time out of his growing and for sharing the depth and integrity of his practice if you want to connect with Glassbrun to join the scheme or to go on any of the courses he described all the relevant links are in the show notes which are on the blog page of our website at accidentalgods.life. There's a transcript of the interview there as well. We'll be back next week with another conversation looking into how the future could be different if we choose to connect with what matters and what's real in our lives. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. 
If you want to see what she's created, that address again is accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the pandemic resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership program. This is a structured training designed insofar as we can to give everybody the chance to connect to the web of life with integrity and authenticity and grounding in ways that make it real. We need to do this, people. We need really to connect. So Abel is helping you, and we're trying to help you. There are so many ways to do this. Do what works for you, but in some way, each day, just do it. And if you know of anybody else who would like to be active in bringing about the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, send them the link. That's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.